Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it, we keep it reels. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Hi, Mama Bears. Robin and I are so excited to be with you on this special podcast about Easter, One of the things that we constantly hear from mamas and papas and grandparents is how do I talk to my kids about Easter and not get lost in the cultural references of Easter, like Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and all of the other fun things that happen around this season. So today, Robin and I are going to talk about Easter and all things Easter, um, how you can talk to your kids about the Easter bunny, but also how you can talk to your kids about how we know the resurrection was real and how we can trust the Bible. So before we dive into all of that, um, I wanted to also mention that we're going to have an Easter guide that's going to come out in the next couple of days if it hasn't dropped already. And you can follow the link below, download it from our website. Um, And it is available um, for free. Just click download and we'll send it right to your email or it'll be somewhere on your screen. Robin understands tech stuff more than I do. Um, So anyways, I just wanted to make sure that you are aware that we have a guide available uh, that will dive more deeply into the things that we will discuss today. Um, And then we'll also offer resources at the end that will um, provide you with even more information if you're interested in this topic. So let's dive in, Robin. I want to start with fun family traditions. What kind of traditions do you do with your family? So I have a two and a half year old. And so she's getting at the age where I think she's going to be processing this. I'm very excited because one of my favorite things to do is resurrection eggs. Yes. And so I think she'll be able to kind of grasp the subject this year. So what resurrection eggs are is there are 12 eggs in here and each one contains something that is related to um, related to the resurrection. The first one, for example, contains a little donkey representing this riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The triumphal entry. Yes. So, and then ending finally, lastly, with a gold egg that is empty, representing that he the tomb is empty and he is risen. So these are just something fun to do. And uh, you can either do one every day or you can do them all at once. It also comes with a little booklet where you have verses in the Bible to read an explanation of what's in each egg. So we find those really fun. So one other thing that I really enjoy doing that's it's sort of unique and I actually haven't done this in high school since high school. And it's probably geared more toward children who are a little bit older, maybe middle schoolers and high schoolers, is something called Ukrainian egg decorating, pisanki, or... Um, so pretty. Yeah, writing. Um, so what you do is you melt wax and you draw onto the egg where you want the wax to cover. And then 
it will, and then you can put it in, in one dye and put more wax and put it in another dye. And then you would melt the wax off gently with a candle and gently wipe it off and get a design. And, and this is something I did in high school. Was, wow. Comparatively speaking, a very, a fairly simple design, but it's like, it's supposed to be a leaf of Lorien from Lord of the Rings. So. Okay. I understand it now. A little more, a little more intricate than your regular egg dyeing, but uh-huh. we've had parties and get togethers before Easter, before we, um, we're girl, girlfriends will sit around the table and we'll chat while we're decorating our eggs. So that's something I really enjoy. What about you, Lindsay? So we decorate nothing like that. <laughs> we decorate <laughs> eggs and usually it's like dropping it in the pink one and waiting five minutes for it to come out pink. Um, sometimes we'll put little designs on those eggs, but for the most part, it's basic colors. Um, my middle daughter, she loves deviled eggs and she loves hard boiled eggs in general. So she loves Easter because we always have a ton of hard boiled eggs in the house and she will just, you know, clean them off on her own and um, salt and pepper and eat those. So I think for her, that's a fun tradition um, for Easter that really doesn't have anything to do with Easter whatsoever. <laughs> um, and then we're starting a new tradition this year. Um, called Resurrection Rules. And we'll link to um, some instructions about those in uh, the the links below. But uh, it's essentially you're taking canned crescent rolls and putting um, uh, cinnamon and sugar, but then a a large marshmallow in the center. Mm -hmm. And then when you bake it, the marshmallow is gone. And it's supposed to give this um, the, the story of, you know, the tomb being empty. Um, so we're going to try that one this year. Um, I, I don't know how it works because I haven't done it yet, but, um, I'm excited to try something new with our kids. And then of course we'll have the Easter egg hunt um, yes. at our church actually. So okay. that should be really super spectacular. We've got thousands of eggs just waiting to be hidden on our church property. And I think our kids are just going to love it. Um, I'm just really excited that Easter is somewhat back to normal this year. So I was um, saying, oh, great that you can have that Easter egg hunt this year. Yeah, where we can gather with our friends. And um, I'm really excited that um, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt and be surrounded with people celebrating Christ's resurrection. I think yes. that's been missed. It really I, has. It really has. It'll be great to be back in person this year. One of the things that I want to talk about, Robin, is we talked about these fun things, but some parents and grandparents are concerned about the way that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ um, with Easter, primarily because there are some rumors, I guess is the best way to call it, um, on the internet and around you know, wives' tales about the pagan roots of Easter. Can you kind of dive into those and 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 talk about whether or not we should be concerned about the pagan roots of Easter? Yes, yes. So this is something I wanted to look into because as with uh, when we met for our Christmas podcast, we chatted a little bit about the pagan roots of Christmas. And so also for the Easter time frame, you're going to hear that Easter has pagan roots as well. And there's two main things that you're going to hear. Number one, that Easter is named after a pagan goddess, Ishtar or Eostra. Mm-hmm. And number two, bunnies and eggs are pagan fertility symbols. So those are the two main things we're going to hear. There's a lot of memes floating around right now. So there's one out there that says, sorry, Christians, but even your beloved Easter is deeply rooted in pagan origins. Happy spring fertility festival. 
And remember oh. to give thanks to the fertility goddesses Ishtar and Yostra. So, who are these goddesses? <laughs> Ishtar was an ancient Mesopotamian goddess of love, war, and fertility. And Yostra was an Anglo-Saxon goddess of the dawn, worshipped in the spring. Hmm. But, um, let me mention one thing here that I came across a lot that people clarified with the major problem with associating the origin of Easter with this pagan goddess is that we don't really have any hard evidence that she was ever worshipped by anyone anywhere. We only have one piece of documentary evidence, and that was written by the Venerable Bede and uh, a Catholic monk and an English historian in the 8th century. So it's mentioned in passing in one of his writings. That's the only documentation we Do have. Do you think one day we can all get titles like that? The the most gracious Robin. <laughs> oh, I was, yes, <laughs> the venerable bead. <laughs> it sounds very fancy. So in the Easter guide, it's going to go a little more into the mythology behind the goddesses. But what I want to talk about here is another aspect. It's that these words, just because these words sound similar, doesn't mean that they mean the same thing. So um, some say that because Easter sounds like Ishtar or Yastra, that that's proof that Christians appropriated these goddess holidays. But let's pause for a minute and talk about what Easter is called in other languages. I remember when I was taking Spanish in high school and I, in, in vocabulary, we learned what Easter was. It's Pascua. And I thought, well, that's kind of random, but come to find out that it comes from the Hebrew word for Passover, Pesach. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, the Greek word for Easter, Pascha, is a transliteration of this Hebrew word, and it's also, it's also Pascha in Latin. In nearly all Romance languages, the word Easter is derived from Pascha. So... Okay. Given that English is a Germanic language, it makes sense that our word for Easter would sound similar for the German word for Easter, which is Ostern. Um, both Easter and Ostern have their root word, Ost, in, in Ost, have their root in Ost, which means the rising of the sun or the east. So um, this is how I process this. Even if there were a festival to the spring goddess, this Eostra, that we have one reference to, and it happened to be in the same time frame that Easter falls. And therefore, we kind of just call Easter Easter because it's in this time frame of this celebration. Mm -hmm. That's really, to me, only a good argument or a possible argument for the English and German words for Easter. It really wouldn't apply to or explain other words that sound closer to Pascha. Mm -hmm. But regardless, some people find that because of this controversy with the word Easter, um, they prefer to say Resurrection Sunday instead. Okay. So that's mouthful to say every time, but yes, yes. And, like and also do. due to the commercialization of Easter, they think, well, it puts more of the focus in the right place. So that's one big thing with pagan roots of Easter is just the word itself. Hmm. But as I said, it, it's a language thing. It's if it's what we call it in English that makes that brings up that topic. But if we were to talk about now, where are bunnies and eggs pagan? Um, I think that it's it's fair. I hope not. From, well, from what I've read, let's make it clear that, yes, bunnies and eggs have been used in pagan celebrations and as symbols of fertility. Pagans 
have used them. So the question is, is it all right that Christians use them in Easter Easter celebration, given that pagans use them in their celebrations also? And for this, I also want to mention, refer back to our Christmas podcast when we talked about Christmas trees. Likewise, there's nothing inherently pagan about bunnies or eggs. God created them just like he created trees. It all comes down to the meaning we ascribe to them. Mm -hmm. Christians might use an egg to communicate the idea of Christ's resurrection, just like with the resurrection eggs that I showed earlier. We can do this without worshiping the egg or associating it with a pagan god. Um, I was visiting um, Marcia Montenegro's website, Christian Answers for the New Age, and I found this quote uh, or something she said on there really interesting, and I wanted to share it here. She said, seeing colored eggs or stuffed bunnies as evil is actually akin to a pagan worldview where objects have inherent secret meanings and or are animated by spirits. Mm -hmm. Ironically, those who label Easter eggs and bunnies as evil are reacting in a pagan manner. Mm. So I found that, you know, really interesting thing to yeah. think about. But um, as far as the Easter bunny, I think you found some information on that, Lindsay. <laughs> what, it, yeah. what can you tell us about the Easter bunny? <laughs> well, I first I want to say like, Marcia's so reasonable when, when she's talking about using these items, whether it's Christmas or Easter or some other Christian yeah. celebration and recognizing that it's, how we intend to use the objects that gives it meaning, um, not that it carries something with it. Um, I mean, Christians are eating eggs. <laughs> They're not, you know, maybe decorating it or whatever, but we are, we are Christians and we believe that Christ died for us. And um, if we choose to dye eggs or not, that doesn't inhibit our salvation. Um, and so we want to make sure to, to recognize that there will be differing views on this topic from Christian to Christian. Um, but we are called to love one another. And if, if this is not a salvific issue, if it does not affect our salvation, then I don't want this to be a barrier um, for people in their faith. Um, but yes, I investigated the Easter bunny because bunnies are just so cute. And the Easter bunny generally is really cute. I have seen some creepy Easter bunnies um, in my time um, and kids like crying on his lap, um, (laughs) just like Santa. Um, But I did wonder like, where did the Easter bunny come from anyway? And it's funny to me that you mentioned that um, Easter in language is also from, it's similar to the German word. Um, and, And so that's where the Easter Bunny came from. It came from German Lutherans. They invented the Easter hare, and um, the Easter hare was supposed to be this judge of children. And he would come and determine if the child was good or bad. And if he was good, he would get some sort of reward for his behavior. And if he was bad, he got punished. Um, and I don't even, I couldn't find like examples of the punishment, but wow. <laughs> it just seems to be very odd that the Easter hare would leave some sort of punishment for children. When this came over to the United States, Americans softened the blow of the Easter hare a little bit by naming him the Easter bunny. And that's where we get sort of this fluffy, lovable character. And uh, the Easter bunny no longer doles out punishments for children. Um, Every child is rewarded in some way, whether that's with chocolate or Easter eggs or whatever it is that each family um, in our culture decides is appropriate for Easter celebrations. Um, So I'm sort of grateful that we don't have this, um, 
judgmental Easter hair anymore. <laughs> and that we have this Easter bunny that is, is um, recognizable and cute and accessible for our kids. And I'm also grateful that it's not pagan. Um, that makes me feel a lot better about the Easter bunny um, and, and using it during Easter time. Um, but all that to say, I think that some parents are also concerned about maybe muddying the waters with a fictional character like the Easter bunny and losing the validity of the Easter story as told in the Bible. And Robin and I are going to talk a little bit about what that means um, and, and why it's important because parents and grandparents, we want your kids to know Jesus and we want to know that he is real and that he came to earth and he lived and he died and he was resurrected and ascended to the father. We want that to be the core of Easter message. Yes, Easter bunnies are super fun and Easter egg hunts and other traditions are great. But what is the core of Easter? And that is truly the fact that Jesus was resurrected. So I want to talk a little bit about the Easter story as told in the biblical narrative. And you can find this in Matthew 27. It's also in Luke, but I really love the way that it's told in Matthew. I find the language to be very accessible. Luke was a historian, so he was a bit wordy, if I'm being honest. And Matthew's um, story of the resurrection is is pretty clear and linear and um, will make, I think, a little bit more sense to your kids and your grandkids. So that's where I recommend finding the Easter story um, and the resurrection story, Matthew 27. So if you want to read it, go for it um, and then come back. So hit pause and go read it and then come back. Um, If you've read Matthew 27, you know that it'll take you from um, the time that Jesus was sentenced um, by Pontius Pilate all the way through um, his death and resurrection. Um, So let's start there. Who was Pontius Pilate? Was he a real person? Yes, he was a real person. He was a governor in Caesarea, and he is written about not only in scripture, but he's also written about um, by historians that are not Christians. He was written by the Jewish historian Josephus, and he was also written about by the Roman historian Tacitus. So there is good evidence that not only was Josephus a real person, but he did sentence a man called Jesus to death by crucifixion. Um, And Josephus and Tacitus both reference that in their manuscripts. Um, So we can pretty much throw out any ideas that Jesus wasn't a real person or that Pontius Pilate wasn't a real person. I think we can start with the foundation that these are real people and they happened in history. Um, And that also Jesus was sentenced to death. We can can pretty much accept that um, face value. But when you hear the word flogging, Robin, does that emit any sort of emotions? Because to me, it's just a word. And I will tell you that before I was researching this in more depth, flogging didn't really have that much of a meaning to me. I thought maybe that just meant he was whipped a little. What did you think about flogging before you researched this? Yeah, no, I'm glad glad you asked that because I didn't really have a good concept of what happened to Jesus before he was, you know, uh, hung on the cross with with flogging. I, I pictured maybe a leather whip or just a, a whip 
with nothing on it, though, just mm-hmm. a plain whip in him getting maybe having a few lashes on his back. But yeah. you're, I think you're probably talking about that. That's not exactly what happened. And I think that's one thing. It's it's hard to, you know, we want to we don't want to show too much gore in our children's book, books because when they show the crucifixion, you know, you can't you don't include that in the pictures about what Jesus really looked like and even pictures of him on the cross. Um but I think at a little bit later age, it's good to discuss that with your children about what exactly happened during the flogging. Right. I'm probably not going to show my seven-year-old the Passion of the Christ film. Right. <laughs> but I may very well allow my 13-year-old to watch that this year um, because I think she's at a place where she can handle the visual aspect of what really happened to Jesus. But I do want to talk about that because I think some kids do wonder what really did Jesus, what happened to Jesus? Mm -hmm. Um, So flogging was pretty common in Roman culture. Crucifixions were pretty common too. This was not an unusual punishment doled out to Jesus. A lot of people were crucified um, back then by the Romans. Um, Flogging consisted of 39 or more lashes of this uh, whip. You're right, it's a leather whip, but it had like little things on it attached to it that would grab into the skin. And when they pulled it, it would either bruise the skin or actually break the skin. And they would just continue to lash. And so at the end of this, we can assume that Jesus was bloodied and broken and that his body was mangled. He he didn't just have a crown of thorns on his head. His body was broken. And and that's what we commemorate when we take communion. This body was broken for you. It truly was broken by by this massive whip. The other bit of it is when he was crucified, um, Sometimes we think of just like nails being driven into his wrists and ankles, but really they were spikes. And I, and I picture like thick metal spikes that maybe you could use for um, camping that you would like keep your tent down so you don't fly away. (laughs) Um, But those were driven into his wrists and his ankles. And then he was hoisted up vertically on this cross. And so his whole body is supported by these metal stakes really and he's broken and he's on this wooden cross and he's just hanging there bleeding to death is is essentially what has happened at this point Um, and then a roman soldier comes and stabs him and and the way that that happened is uh it it seems as though this it went through his lungs and his heart um, and so he bled um, water and blood, which indicates that it was through his lungs and his heart. Um, he was dying by asphyxiation. Yes. He could mm-hmm. not breathe. Um, and he was going through heart failure. And and, and Lee Strobel, in, in, in his book, um, The Case for Easter, um, describes an interview uh, with a doctor where the doctor said, there's just no way Jesus could have survived this. There's no way. Um, because he not only was beat, he was just, he was stabbed. I mean, I'm just thinking not alone would have been enough to, to kill him. Um, but he just was hung there to die. And, um, this becomes really important in, in the conversation later is that Romans did a good job at this. They were very successful at killing people by crucifixion. 
And there are um, archaeological sites that have been dug up that show like, oh, yeah, Romans were definitely good at crucifying and killing people. They didn't make mistakes because can you imagine a Roman guard coming up to coming up to the governor and being like, oh, my gosh, he's still alive. Five days later, I failed. Do you think that Roman guard is going to live very much longer or be asked to carry out this job <laughs> anymore because he failed. They're not going to fail at this. Um, and That's so, right. If they didn't succeed in killing the criminal, they would be killed themselves. So, Correct. I, I think it's a really important point because he was dead. Jesus was dead. There are some worldviews that will say that Perhaps Jesus just passed out and appeared to be dead. That's commonly known as the swoon theory. Uh, Muslims will subscribe to that theory quite often. Others will say that maybe that he was swapped out at some point by somebody else and somebody else died up on the cross and it wasn't actually Jesus. Right. Um, but there's really no motive for somebody to swap him out. Um, and he was being viewed by many, many people. There, there doesn't seem to have been an opportunity for him to be swapped out at any point. The Romans wanted to kill him. They wanted him dead. Um, the Jews, frankly, wanted him dead. Everybody there wanted Jesus dead, and uh, except for his disciples and beloved people, um, followers. But I, I think knowing that he died is really important because we can't talk about his resurrection from the dead if he didn't really die. That's kind of a big point. Um, so I want to make sure that you're able to talk to your kids about the fact that there is good reason to believe that Jesus legitimately died on the cross. Um, it wouldn't make medical sense if he didn't. Uh, uh, I know that he was fully God and fully human, but he had to die in order to save us. And if he didn't die, that's a big part of the Christian narrative. And um, what are we even doing here? Um, so there's that anything to add on the fact that, uh, Jesus actually died. No, I think you covered it. Okay, good. So then let's move on to the, um, empty tomb. Was the tomb really empty? And this is going to take all of like three seconds to tell you. Yep. The tomb is empty. Um, the, there are a couple of reasons we can know this. Um, one, it was discovered by women. If this had been a myth or a legend that was made up in the first century, they would not have used women because women are less valuable than men in the first century. And uh, to use a woman is to say, um, that's embarrassing. I would say that would be an embarrassing fact for people in the first century. So it would have been men described, not women. For had credibility this purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, for credibility. It would have been men 100%. But it was, but the empty tomb was discovered by women. Also, when the disciples approached the guards about the empty tomb, the guards didn't say, you have the wrong tomb. He's over there. They actually were concerned that it was empty as well and, can, and actually accused the disciples of stealing the body. Uh, and uh, to clarify, the disciples didn't have a motive to steal the body. He was buried the way he should have been buried. And there were, there were no reasons for the disciples to have stolen the body. There were also no reasons for the guards to have taken the body and hidden it. He was dead and they were proud of it and end of story. So it was very confusing that um, the guards and the um, disciples had no reason for 
taking the body. Um, and the guards did not direct anybody to some other tomb saying, you've got the wrong spot, go find it. Uh, and then, I mean, we just know that there was no body produced. So at the end of the day, we didn't get a body until he showed up <laughs> alive. There, there was nobody saying, yes, he's, he's here. Look, he's alive. Um, uh, or he's dead. Actually, he's dead. Here's his body. Um, they just didn't have it. Mm -hmm. So I would say we can pretty much determine uh, based on the way that the narrative is described in scripture that the tomb was empty. Um, and, and that leads us to how do we know he was resurrected? And this is really the main point of Christianity. This is what sets us apart from pretty much every religion on the face of the planet. Uh, we are unique in a sense, in a way that our belief hinges on this. Paul said, if this didn't happen, you're not going to be a Christian anymore. And it's really important to realize that when we talk about the resurrection, just how important it is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And he did. He, how do we know this? Well, he appeared to a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> I am not Gary Habermas and I can't just like name all the people off the top of my head who he appeared to, but I'm going to attempt. So he appeared to Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. He appeared to the, um, the remaining 11 disciples. He re re appeared to Paul. Yes. He um, appeared to James, his brother. Mm -hmm. He appeared to some other women and he appeared to 500 people. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to just those. Yeah. And Peter. Yeah. And Peter. Oh, can't forget Peter. <laughs> yes, he appeared to Peter as well. Uh, you said the disciples, so that includes yeah. <laughs> I guess. Sure. Uh, thank you for, for clarifying. Yes, Peter also saw saw the return Jesus. And Thomas. Okay, Thomas also saw him. And I'm sure there are some other references in scripture that um, you know, I I missed. Mm -hmm. Essentially, there are people, there, there are people written in scripture who um saw Christ return and and saw him after he had been dead. And can you imagine um, sitting around and knock, 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 there's Jesus. And you're like, wait, I saw you die. <laughs> we buried you. What? Um, because they, they didn't expect that to happen. Um, and, and that's why Jesus had to explain some things. And that's why he had to show Thomas. Um, you know, Thomas gets a lot of flack uh, in scripture and by Christians. A lot of times we'll, you know, make fun of doubting Thomas and, you know, Jesus was right there. Why would Thomas still doubt him? Well, most people would. I, I mean, really, uh, and 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 you would need some sort of evidence, like this is really the guy. And 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 Jesus, in all of his graciousness, showed Thomas. You know, he he said, "Oh, yeah, absolutely. Here here are the wounds, not in the hand, in the wrist. Here are the wounds." And um, and I think that's really important to remember that Jesus was willing to walk people through this because. It was unbelievable. It is truly supernatural. And um, and he was willing to show us why, why we could believe it. Um, but could it have been a mass hallucination? That's one of the one of the questions that often gets asked is, okay, 500 people, they probably all hallucinated that. Um, no. I'm married to a psychologist and I have uh, talked about Jay sometimes on this podcast, but he, he has really studied this part of, of scripture because he's very interested in the idea of a mass hallucination. And, and we've talked about it. And um, from a psychologist's point of view, it just doesn't make sense. 
Um, 500 people having the same hallucination at the same time. Hallucinations in general are very singular events and very personal events. And it doesn't make sense psychologically that 500 people would have hallucinated the return of Christ. It, it, it's so rare. Hallucinations are so rare anyway. And now we're going to say 500 people in scripture hallucinated. Um, further, um, the earliest creeds show that the 500 um, saw the risen Christ. And what's important about that, and, and you can read it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 7, is that um, some of them were still alive right. when these creeds were written. And if they had not seen the risen Christ, do you not think they would have raised their hands and been like, um, I didn't see him? Uh, of course they would have. They would not have been lumped in with this group of people that didn't actually see the risen Christ. And so we have to remember, like, some of these people were actually still alive. Paul, still alive. And he hinged his entire ministry on the fact that Christ rose from the dead. This was a guy who was awful to Christians. He was present at the stonings and beatings of of people who followed Christ. And he turned around and completely transformed his life and spoke this message until his death. James, Jesus's brother, was a skeptic. Even up until the time that Christ died, he was a skeptic that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus shows up again and James again. Now he's a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And it's a transformed life. He was no longer a skeptic. When you're looking at who is being, who is bearing witness to the risen Lord, the evidence all seems to point to the fact that Christ truly did rise from the dead and, and that people truly believed that they saw him and they lived out their lives and preached that gospel all the way until they themselves were, many of them were martyred for their beliefs. Um, so I think we can be confident, Robin, that what we read in scripture is true um, and, and that we can teach it to our children with confidence that they can believe that Jesus died and rose again um, for us. Uh, I, I think that that is um, very reliable um, testimony within scripture. I agree. Um, but I know that a podcast is not something that our kids are going to probably watch. Maybe they're going to listen to it. Maybe they're just listening to us right now, Robin, and our kids are going to be like, oh my gosh, I totally get it. Lindsay and Robin. Yep. They, they explained it all. But the truth of the matter is, is in a short podcast like this, we can't possibly cover all of it. And we don't actually cover it all in our Easter guide either. So are there any resources that can um, help parents and grandparents and, and even children um, understand uh, why we can believe that the narrative in scripture is true. Yeah. So, um, so many of the things that you just mentioned, the, um, the, the empty tomb, the, uh, why it was clear that Jesus died on the cross, the, the mass hallucination, 500 people seeing him are covered in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Um, but what I really enjoy recommending to people are, Sometimes what I will recommend more so than the book is there is a movie um, based on the case for Christ and uh, Lee Strobel's life at that time and what he went through in his investigation. And he had a because he had a colleague in there. He's like, why don't you just go straight for the jugular and try to disprove the resurrection? So that's a, a movie that I 
gladly recommend to non-Christian friends and I think would be great to watch with our children as well. Maybe, you know, a little bit older. I'm not sure what age, you know, you would start watching that with them since I don't have an older, maybe 10 or older, 12. My seven-year-old has seen it. Yeah, because it's nothing, it's not inappropriate in any way. It's just whether they would sit down and watch their heads a little bit. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Uh, But um, I think that's a great way to introduce the ideas to them. And then that would encourage them, okay, I'd like to go look more into this. Let me read more um, in the books. Let me read more in the Bible about it. But that's something I really enjoy. And my favorite part is when he goes to visit the medical doctor and he thoroughly explains why in his medical opinion, Mm -hmm. it was impossible Mm -hmm. that Jesus simply swooned and did not die on the cross. That's a great part of the movie. So. I, I think that was my favorite part of the film as well. I think it's Dr. Metherol. Yes, yes, that's right. Yep. Um, let me mention one other thing real quick. It reminded me with the the whole, would they just disappear the body or did the disciples steal the body? There's another movie that I really enjoy called Risen. And that oh. um, that's not, you know, not a children's movie either, but it's great in helping you understand. I, I didn't really understand, have a good concept until you see it portrayed in the movie of just mm-hmm. what the Romans were going through just to try to recover that body because they, you know, thought it was going to create an uprising within the Jewish community if they mm. thought that this Messiah had risen again. So it's it's really it does a really good job of showing everything they would have gone through to try to retrieve that body versus simply taking it somewhere else or making it disappear. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to note because I did not say it and I sort of glossed over it. So I'm really glad that you mentioned um, why it really doesn't make sense that the body would not have been produced or that it would have been stolen. It doesn't make sense on either side, why the guards would have taken it or why the disciples would have taken it. Um, And so uh, I think that's a really important point. Um, And I love Lee Strobel. Here's what I love about Lee. He is super accessible. He will take the academic versions of the things that I also love um, in seminary, I read all the academic stuff and Lee breaks it down into a really accessible way for people who want to read something short or um, just want to get snippets here and there um, to bolster their faith on the evidences of Christianity. And, and he, he really just is, is a lovely writer. If I'm being honest, he, he does a great job of just getting it out there and in an easy to know way. Um, so we actually did, we used the, the case for Easter um, as part of our research for this book uh, or for this podcast. And then she mentioned um, the case for Christ book. Well, Lee has actually created um, kids versions of many of his books, including his newest one about case for miracles. And this is turning into a commercial for Lee, but really he's, No one's really done it like him. Um, And then a student edition of his books as well for older kids. And if you want to walk through um, a guide about how we know the resurrection is real, those are some places to start. And then finally, our friend, Melissa Kane Travis. She wrote a lovely series of books, but this one in particular um, is Jesus, or how do we know Jesus is alive? It's not available currently in print. However, you can get the Kindle version or the ebook version um, online, and it is a beautiful description of how we know that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And she has just had it beautifully illustrated, and um, it is wordy, but that's a good thing because she walks through 
why we can know, why our kids can know that what is in the Bible is true. And she tells it in story form that kids will love. It's it's features little kids having a conversation with each other about why they should believe in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And I love that because it does make it accessible um, for kids. And um, I like, I'm an only, I'm a children's pastor. And so I like having a ton of um, children's resources on hand. Um, and, and this is one that I definitely recommend to not only my families at my church, but everybody uh, to get in their resources, um, especially now you're just going to have to get it online. And I'm sorry, the ebook is fine. Um, maybe one day it'll get printed again if enough people request it. Um, but that pretty much wraps up this podcast. Um, we will dive into some other things um, when we finish our guide, uh, we will talk about some more cultural references to Easter. Uh, we will just get a little bit meatier, I guess is what you'll say, um, in, in the written form. And you'll be able to download that on our website. Um, if you can't already download it today, it'll be in a couple of days after this podcast launches. Yeah. Um, but as ever, please remember to like the video if you liked it, and hit the subscribe button so you never miss anything new from Mama Bear Apologetics. We pray that you have a blessed Easter season and and that you have a great time celebrating with your family and friends the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Bye. Happy Easter. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.